Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the History of Germany podcast. I'm Travis Dow. And this is part two of the Saxon miniseries. If you didn't listen to part one, I would, because in this case, we're going in strictly chronological order. I I stopped last time kind of setting the Saxons up. And this time we're going to jump right into Henry the first. Um, so Henry, well, kind of, we'll, we'll go a little bit further back. Um, now, uh, in fact, yeah. Let's, let's, so Henry, the, Henry the first will be the focus. Henry the Fowler is also that might ring a bell. I don't know. Depends on how much you know about history. Or in German, he's Heinrich der Vogler, which almost sounds dirty, but it's not because there's because it's not. And Heinrich or Heinrich der Finkler, which also just I don't know. It just also just sounds kind of wrong. But so Henry the Fowler. Now, okay, so a couple generations before Henry. We have Otto and his son, Louis-Dolf, who I don't really care about either of those. They're Saxon um, dukes, but they're, they're half English. Spross was his mom, so he was half English. And um, Louis-Dolf is made Duke of Saxony. And I really only care about Louis-Dolf because, kind of like Merovig of the Franks, Louis-Dolf just lends his name to the following dynasty. So, I mean, we'll just keep right going. So, his son is Otto the Illustrious. And he's illustrious, I guess, because he founded the Bavarian Church's Kickstarter campaign in Freising. And that's about all I have to say about him, really. Now, his son is Henry I, Henry the Fowler. Okay, so why are we talking about all these Dukes of Saxony with we have the, the Louis-Dolf fingers now. This, so uh, Henry is Louis-Dolf's grandson. And they're, they're the Dukes of Saxony under the East Frankish king. And that's basically where we left off la last episode. Otto the Illustrious, Duke of Sa Saxony has a son. That's where we're going to start. So Heinrich, later called the Fowler, was also related through his maternal side to Charles the Great. Okay, so there was a lot of, there was already marriages happening between the Louis-Dolfinger and the Carolinians. And it seems at first, if um, if you don't jump ahead in the history books and, and gives you all the spoilers, but it's, uh, that the, it seems at first that the sons of Heinrich would follow in the Carolinian dynasty's path of breaking up the kingdom and splitting it among his sons. And Henry tried to avoid this fate. So he's not a Frank, he's a Saxon. But the kingdom almost split up anyways. So the troubles start pretty early on. See, Henry married a nun, who was also the daughter of a Saxon count, except the church said nope and annulled it. But not until Hatheberg, the nun, had given birth to Tankmar. Okay, now keep Tankmar in mind for a second, because, so he's the king's eldest, well, the duke, but anyways, he's the king's eldest son. But spoiler alert, he's... Well, okay, so just actually no spoiler alert, just, just keep listening. So the church sent this nun back to the cloister, but Heinrich went ahead and kept all of her Saxon lands inheritance. Okay, now he marries and gets a land-holding nun knocked up. This seems kind of planned to me, and 
he didn't. He, he seems to have not been that shaken up by the Pope's or by, by the Church's annulment, because then Henry marries Matilda, a Westphalian Saxon count's daughter. The father was Dietrich. Finally, I picked a podcast where I can pronounce the names. And anyways, so with Matilda, Heinrich had three sons and two daughters. That makes four sons altogether, which sounds very Carolinian, but not right away, I hope, because they were betrothed when she was 13. Now, the the church was fine with that. Now, Matilda is a descendant of the Saxon Duke Vidukind, who was an enemy of Charles the Great in his Saxon Wars. So a very powerful Saxon. And yeah, um, very. Yeah, we mentioned we talked about him in several previous episodes. And one of Matilda and Heinrich's son was named Otto. And Matilda is eventually canonized, but I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to circle back to that later. Anyways, so why am I talking about the Saxon dukes instead of the Frankish king of East Francia? I'm glad you asked. I was just getting to that. So on December 23rd, 1918, Conrad I, king of East Francia and the Franconian duke, dies. So it gets interesting because even though Conrad didn't much didn't think much of Heinrich, before his death, he recommended him as his heir anyways. And for the most part, the Franconian and Saxon nobles elected Henry. Now, okay, so two points. So first, Henry was the only king of the heir to decline a coronation by the church. The Archbishop of Mainz offered, but instead, allegedly, he wanted to be crowned by the people. And first, Duke Burkhardt, the second of Swabia swore fealty to the new king, and Duke Arnulf of Bavaria did not submit until Henry defeated him in two campaigns and a couple of years later in 921. And Henry besieged his um, Arnulf's residence at Ratisbon, Regensburg today, and just, you know, forced Arnulf into submission. Okay, and now, after this, we have a Saxon king. That's a start. Now, we're, we're almost getting to the parts where some of my books on German history actually start. And now let me back up a second. And there's another interesting thing happening at this this time around the, the, you know, 900s. And that is that the Hungarians are a coming. And according to one, so the descriptions of them, and again, it's probably part propaganda and exaggeration, but the descriptions of the time really describe these barbaric, you know, even cannibalistic, but horribly pagan um, peoples from the East. And in this case, you know, from kind of but there's one quote I found. So they say, uh, that says that the Hungarians do not live according to the way of humans, but rather as cattle. They'll eat raw meat, drink blood. As a sort of medicine, they'll eat pieces of their conquered foes' hearts, and they cut their ha- hair all the way down to the scalp. They're on horses day and night, shoot bows from horses. And they, they, so they had these, the Hungarian, kind of like other steppe peoples or, or Western Asian peoples, they had this compound bow horn of, um, like, like, like it was, you know, horn and then wood and horn and wood kind of like really like layered. And it took years to make one, you know, to properly cure the wood and prepare it and dry it. And, um, yeah, so this, this, the Hungarians coming, um, like the Huns before them and then the Mongols after, but now we're in the 900s. So we have, um, this, I mean, especially because it was the 900s, maybe, they thought this was kind of the end of times. I mean, this was Armageddon. This was, you know, the. I mean, this was like biblical sort of revelations stuff happening. Now, Vidokint von 
Vidokint of Corvi had them as the descendants of the Huns and Gothic witches, which I, I, they're genetically not, or like linguistically they're not, so I don't know. But the Franks had these heavy Frankish mounted knights, and they were just so slow against these, you know, experienced, smaller, much quicker riders uh, that they just they just couldn't really catch up to the Hungarians. The Hungarians would come and you know retreat and or feign a retreat, and and these big heavy Frankish knights just just it was a totally different tactic. Okay, and then we have the son of Arnulf, who was Louis the Child, Ludwig das Kind, who couldn't do much against the Huns because he was only seven. And there was a big German coalition. So Markgrave Leupold of Bavaria marched all the way to what is today Bratislava, like Pressburg at the time. Now, Conrad I uh, fought against the Hungarians. Or he's not Carolinian, but still a Frank. And okay, so back, back to Henry. Hold that thought on the Hungarians for a second. When when Henry finally takes over, he tries to stop the Fr- Frankish succession right, where the kingdom gets split. And there's kind of there's a couple of things where we start to see a difference between Holy Roman Empire and France. For one, he makes it clear that Otto would be king, even though he had an older son, etc. And he wasn't really a proper king again. So not like the, the Frankish king was a proper king, even a Frankish, an East Frankish emperor, one could say. But Heinrich considered himself first among equals, like the earlier Germ- Germanic kings, I'd say. And none of this emperor crap. No, and, and so now the stem duchies of Saxony and the Frankish ones of East Francia were much more of a confederation compared to like Charles the Great, who is a really autocratic, you know, had total power basically of, of, of his empire. So not so with Heinrich. This was hard to overcome. And later the HRE, the Holy Roman Empire splintered in like stark contrast to the centralized France also later, but there's many other reasons for that. So, and, but we're just now seeing some of those reasons. Henry allowed the Dukes of Franconia, Swabia, and Bavaria to add another stem duchy, which is Duke Gilbert of Lorraine. And we definitely see a split with, I mean, there's the the Bonner, the Treaty of Bonn in 1921. So it's kind of a, there's an ending of the combined Frankish empire. And in Bavaria, so now think of kind of Germany-ish, without Bavaria at first, we have the Luitpoldinger, so there's the Luidolfinger, are the Saxons, Luitpoldinger is, uh, so Arnulf in this case, Um, but Heinrich... It's, it's in Heinrich's time. Heinrich I starts to assume power further and further south, just kind of diplomatically, just on paper. Um, but anyway, so he has peace with Bavaria, and we see that the treaty makes them a Herzog, like a duke. And this duke seems to have the right to appoint bishops in his realm, and can also you know consolidate power in that way, and basically practically rule as kings. Totally different than like England or France. And there's another, there's a couple of interesting things that I just, I love about Henry the, Henry the first time. So one of them, this is like totally trivia and it's like nothing to do with the story, but um, Gebetsverbrüderung is like, um, I don't, I don't even really understand, but like you, you, you basically in medieval times, you pay a monastery, you donate money to a monastery, especially noblemen or a king in this case, or, you know, grand duke or whatever. Um, and, and you'd, you'd pay for a monastery, kind of like tithing, but a lot of money where you'd um, pay for the monks basically to pray for you even after your death and for, for a long time, for as long as, you know, I mean, on paper forever, basically, and to, to show loyalty beyond the generations and to kind of keep your memory alive. And I don't even, I don't even know all the reasons. I'm not an expert on that area, but 
apparently, so around abbeys in St. Gallen and uh, Reichenau's and Gogessen Kloster, uh, Remiremont and, cl and a, cloister, a, a cloister or monastery around Fulda, Henry I apparently comes up in prayer rotation now and then to this day, I believe. And there's another neat story that if you're a, if you're a listener on uh, to any of my shows from History of Alchemy to Bohemican to this one um, to well it probably hasn't come up in Americana yet but um, Heinrich the First gives Basel to the Burgundian king in return for the Holy Lance and yes it is it is. That that relic, which we've brought up a lot because all these kings, like it's just it has this crazy history. And so I've actually mentioned this before when we talked about Rudolf II, for instance, who also had the lance, a Habsburger. So the Habsburgers had it. Charles IV uh, broke the lance. And we've done an episode on both of those people, separate episodes. Um, but it's, the, yeah, so this is where it comes into the Ottonian, the Louis Dolfinger Louis dynasty, first of all. And at first, okay, so um, now let me back up. Let me go back to the Hungarians now. This is where it all comes together. So the Hungarians made the Saxons pay tribute, basically, and, and were just, you know, ransacking as they wished and, and looting and plundering. And Heinrich I buys a nine-year truce where they wouldn't attack as long as they pay this tribute. And during this time, Heinrich does not sit idly by and just say, oh, phew, you know, thank goodness we have peace now. No, he prepares and he builds walls and he builds a standing army. And um, so he has this Herbannpflichtige. So every ninth is it's basically a long German word for um, every ninth can be conscripted. So there's a every ninth farmer, let's say every ninth peasant can be conscripted. And not everybody that's fit for military service, but everybody that's fit for military service, every ninth of those. Okay, yeah. So when the Hungarians came, at the end of those nine nine years, um, Heinrich, and, and during those this time, so that he created this whole system of reform. He was really planning this. He created reform to make the Saxons much more war-ready. And, and more happened in this time, but I just want to stick to hung Hungarians for a second. So when they came back, in 933, to renew their tribute arrangement at the end of those nine years, Heinrich told them to um, just, no. Heinrich just told them nuts. So 932 is when Henry refused to pay the regular tribute. And now 933 is the victory, where his men hailed him as the pater patriae and rerum domens and imperatoroque. And according to Vidukint, like his people really loved him after he defeated the uh, the Hungarians first. And, and they began raiding when he first um, told them to, to, uh, to go away, that he's not going to pay his tribute. And he led a unified army of all German duchies to victory at the Battle of Riade in 933. This is kind of near the, it's not exactly sure where it was, but um, probably near the river Unstrut, and just stopped the Hungarians in their tracks. Now, it's, it's, in a way, it's hard to overemphasize this battle, although I'm sure it's always exaggerated in all sources, but it's also like symbolically it's hard to overemphasize. So let me let me try and put this in the context because we had Bavarians and Swabians and Franks, Lotharingen, Saxons and Turing Thuringians, all Germans basically took part in this battle. So it's it's been romanticized. And he specifically plans the battle on Longinus's feast day. So that the Holy Lance, that's the name Longinus was the Roman emperor who stabbed 
uh, Jesus in the side after Jesus's death on the cross. Okay, so that's the Holy Lance we're talking about, that lance. And it's um, that, that, you know, we've mentioned it so many times. If you want to know more about the lance, there's documentaries on it. There's all kinds of just go Google it. But we've talked about it before. So I'm not going to bring it up again, again, other than the fact that this is where the this is where it enters German history. OK, and, and this is where it gets another. So he actually carries the lance into battle. So he specifically plans the battle on Longinus's feast day so that the Holy Lance would have this extra, you know, the extra magic juju or whatever. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not an expert, like I said. But these Hungarians were until then, the reason I say it's almost hard to overemphasize this battle is that they were really seen as unbeatable, almost like superhuman, really just not, it's just undefeatable, invincible in a way. And they really were. I mean, they were rampaging and raiding where they wanted for, for just years, decades. And like I said, I mean, this really was seen as the end of times. So here comes this Duke almost king and, you know, carries the Holy Lands and just smites the Hungarians for the first time and really stops them in their track. Okay, now back up a tad. So during the truce with the Magyars, this was like uh, 933 and the 936 was the battle. So back up a couple of years during this truce with the Hungarians, he did. He also, to, I guess, you know, get his troops some practice, but also, you know, use the truce um, advantageously, he went ahead and attacked all sorts of Slavs around him. So the Palabian Slavs on the eastern border of his realm. Uh, 928, so against the Slavic Heveli tribes and seized their capital, that's Brandenburg. So right now, that's kind of the center of Prussia. It's during this time when the Saxons marched that far east for the first time. So in case you didn't know um, where Berlin is right now, if you go this far back, they spoke Slavic languages, not German languages. That came later. Like Old Prussian is not a Germanic language. It's a Slavic language. There's some trivia for you. Um, so he then invaded Glomace, which is uh, on the Elba River. So we're, you know, the Elba goes all the way to Hamburg. I mean, the Elba, so the, um, yeah, anyway, I mean, so we're, we're talking in, in Germany today, but this at that time was Slavic areas. So later, Albrechtsburg is around, it was built at Meissen. So these are all German places now, but at that time it was Slavic. Now with the help, 929 next year with Ar- Arnulf of Bavaria, they entered Bohemia and this we mentioned on the Bohemian episode two, Duke Wenceslav. So Wenceslav I is like the patron saint of the Czech Republic to this day. So, um, yeah, forced. So they forced him to resume their yearly payment. He's a saint, by the way. So, you know, good King Wenceslav. That's that's that guy. That's the guy who these guys bullied into, um, yeah, <laughs> into yearly payment of tribute. So. A uh, different Slavic Red Army had, had driven away their chief, captured the town of Walzlim, massacred the inhabitants. So, yeah, so now Germans had to march against them. So there's all this back and forth in. Okay, there's already the Lusatians and the Ukraini on the lower Oder. They had to pay tributary. And this is right, so 932 and 934, so right around the same time with the, as the Hungarians. And then he marched off against the Hungarians. Now, it was up to his son later to consolidate all the power and figure it all out. So, okay. And he, uh, one thing that I kind of thought was interesting was that he, in this time, he actually sold some Slavs as slaves to Spain. So, you know, went to the other, to his other border across the Franks and sold them off to to Muslims. Um, So Slavs were pagan and then, you know, Saxons were Christian. And so it was, I guess it was seen as okay to make a little bit of cash on the side selling them off just you know as long as they're not selling them i don't know i don't know so anyways um he also okay so that's to the east 
Then he also pacifies territory to the north. Uh, up there we have the Danes, who were at this time now, the Frisians start to collapse or not doing as well. The Danes are starting to um, attack them. We have Vidukint of Corvi reports that Danes, at least some Danes, were subjects of Henry the Fowler. But more importantly, or more significantly, he incorporated some territories into, uh, held by the Vens, who I'm going to do, I'm going to get to shortly. Those were um, Slavs just in the middle of Germany, basically, who, so they, you know, they got together with the Danes, attacked Saxony, attacked Germany, and conquered Schleswig in 934. Okay, so Henry dies in, on the 2nd of July in 936 in, in Memleben, it just one of his favorite palaces. And by then, German peoples were basically united as a single kingdom and quite a few non-German peoples, like I've said. And he was buried at the Quedlinburg Abbey. And this was established by Matilda in his honor. And now several times it, before he died in his like, he kind of he kind of knew his end was coming. He had a heart attack or I don't even I, I read it in German. I can't translate. Um, but he, he kind of knew his end was nigh. And so he ordered the nobility several times to see Otto as his heir and become the next king. And he lay, he gave land and wealth to the other kids to kind of keep them quiet. But these are not the Franks. So this was their chance. He saw this like, okay, let's, let's, now that, you know, they saw what the Frankish succession law was bad. To put it in an academic jargon, it was stupid. And so his son Otto succeeds him as king, one of four sons, and he alone is, is king, and then crowned emperor in 1936. Now his second son, Henry, became Duke of Bavaria, and his third son, Brun or Bruno, became Archbishop of Cologne. So off to the church, whether he could really, no matter how good his Latin was, basically. And now remember that son from the first marriage, the son of the nun that he married right at the beginning of the episode, Tankmar. So, okay, well, sorry, I saved him for last, but he's actually going to be part of the next episode. So, after the death of um, the husband, Duke Giselbert of Lothringen, Henry's daughter, Geberga of Saxony, marries King Louis IV of France, and his youngest daughter, Hedviga, so what did I say? He has three daughters? Anyways, the so Hed, Hedvig, Hedvig, Hedviga of Saxony marries Duke Hugh the Great of France and was the mother of Hugh Capet, the Capet, the Capetian king of France, the first, you know, the, the, giver, the giver of its name. Um, so the Capetians are descendant matri matrilineally uh, or whatever from Henry the Fowler, okay? So there's even, so there was a relationship there. I, th I thought that was interesting already. So they're all related to Charles the Great and now they're already related to each other even more. So yeah, I mean, the, the royal families of Europe definitely kind of don't split, but the ones of Germany and France, it's just the same family, just different branches on the same family tree. But okay, now there's more. So back to Henry the Fowler. If only the dead would just stay put. And this is not poor Heinrich's fault. I, I forgive him for this. But alas, Henry returned to the public attention as a character in Richard Wagner's opera Lohengrin in uh, 1850, I believe. And Wagner was basically sucking up to the Brabantian nobles uh, who were kind of battling the Magyars, the Hungarians, basically a thousand years later, or, you know, 900 years later. So after the attempts to achieve German national unity failed with the revolution of 1848, Wagner strongly relied on this 
Henry, like uh, uh, the Henry as the symbol, as you know, the first really actual German ruler of all German tribes. And, and, you know, th- this was advocated by the pan. So remember, 1848, Germany was splintered, just just in a thousand little principalities, li- like literally a thousand and pan or eleven hundred. Re- I mean, a lot. And pan pan Germanist activities like, you know, uh, these, these just romantic nationals of the of the, you know, 1800s, like Friedrich Ludwig, La- uh, Friedrich Ludwig Jan, but but many, many others. There's this idea, this pan Germanic idea. But of course, these romantic and nationalistic ideas didn't die out in the 1800s, unfortunately, because now there's indications or there's like supposedly Heinrich Himmler of, you know, Nazi fame saw himself as the reincarnation of the first king of Germany. Now, I say king of Germany loosely, but um, this, this, this Nazi ideology picked up on Henry the Fowler in a big way. So they really had him as the founding father of the German nation, period, fighting, you know, both the Latin Western Franks and the Slavic tribes of the East, kind of, you know, giving a precedence to what those Germans were doing at that time, a thousand years later, 900 years later. Um, so, yeah, anyways, so Credlinburg is charged, was charged with taking care of Henry the Fowler's remains. So those, those nuns, it's a cloister. And so there, there's a, tradition going all the way back that these um, emperors would go there for Easter. They would go to Kvedlinburg and, and, you know, visit the site of Henry the Fowler. But then, of course, the abbey was deconsecrated in the 30s and turned into an SS shrine. And poor Heinrich the Fowler was then reconsecrated with his skeleton wrapped in a swastika flag and a metal wreath on his head. With Himmler leading the procession, it, um, yeah, and okay, so he had a in this time in the 1930s, he had a permanent SS military honor guard in Kvedlinburg at his at his tomb, and after the war, Kvedlinburg fell to East Germany, and by the way, it was liberated by the Americans, but just by treaty, it fell to the Russians, and when they checked to see if the Nazis had, so when the Soviets or East Germans then uh, checked to see if the Nazis had buried the real skeleton, they found out it was a fake, so the Nazis just buried somebody there, um, because Heinrich was in the Lohengrin, Hitler's favorite Wagner opera, so yeah, anyways... Ah, yeah. Uh, So in this time, we have the cathedrals in Mainz, Speyer, Worms, Otto of Freising and the Bavarian Church. This all starts here. Okay, now we have the Luidolf-Finger, the Saxons, and the Luidpoldinger, the Bavarians. And I remember this by, so Luidolfinger has a D, like Dresden, where, which is in Saxony today, and Luidpoldinger, I don't know, like Passau, which is in Bavaria. Um, You can remember it however you want, but Luidolfinger, Saxon, Luidpoldinger, Bavarian. And and the, the Saxon, I mean, Louis Dolfinger were also the Ottonian. So you could say the Ottonian dynasty and people will know what you mean. Okay, so for a long time, Heinrich I, let me clear up a bit of historiography. So Heinrich I, the Fowler, was seen as the first real German king, the first emperor of the Holy Roman Empire proper and welcome to the kingdom of Germany. Except false. That is wrong. So, but even, I mean, so historians thought this for a very long time. You, you, that's why I'm, I'm telling you this, because you might hear this. I'm just telling you it's wrong. Now, Wagner and the Nazis didn't help this either. And Wagner and the Nazis, I'm, I'm so sorry, uh, Herr Wagner. But anyways, 
No, I, I hope I've shown that he did not see himself that way at all. And indeed, we do see some of the difference between East Francia and the soon-to-be Kingdom of Germany. But Heinrich I was in a line of founding fathers, so to speak. Like we mentioned some of them in the previous episodes, the last couple episodes, including the Frankish episodes. That's why I did the Frankish miniseries. And I'm going to mention some further founding fathers next episode. The Leudolfinger dynasty is... Namely, known after, like, the Ottonians, after Otto I, another the Great. And so we're also talking about the Ottonian dynasty starting now. And so, on to the Ottos. The History of Germany podcast is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. This month, the podcast of the month is Royfield Brown's How Jamaica Conquered the World. And until next time, bis zum nächsten Mal. Vielen Dank fürs Zuhören und auf Wiedersehen. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.